Anyway, let's stop talking about me. Yeah, doesn't want to do anymore. Uh, you can swear if you absolutely want to, but professionally, I wonder whether it would help. No. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I'm just putting that out there. I, I think it's a piece of PR. I could be wrong. Um, uh, but we'll see. You know, we'll definitely keep that being. <laughs> um, why don't we start off with introductions? Because I don't, I mean, obviously I know your name. It's Johnny, isn't it? Yeah. Right. Great. Tick. I don't remember anybody else's name. Tom. I'm Tom. Tom Tenner. Right. <laughs> Great. Tom Hafford. Uh, so Tom. Yeah. Johnny. Inga. Inga. I'm pointing rudely. That's fine. I'm Kate. And Kate. Tom, Johnny, Inga, and Kate. Tom, Johnny, Inga, and Kate. You fine. are John and Jacob. Something. Yes. John Jacob. Yeah. You're listening to the Thoroughly Good Classical Music Podcast, a conversation between audience and artists intended to demystify the classical music and opera art form. If you haven't already, please be sure to subscribe to the podcast. It's available via Spotify and Audioboom. That way, you'll hear about the latest podcasts as they become available. Be sure to follow Thoroughly Good on Twitter or on Facebook, and you'll find the blog at thoroughlygood.me. Let me let you into a secret of mine. One of the best times, I think, to listen to a group of performers sing or play is during rehearsals. You may be forgiven for thinking that this is because I'm someone who likes to listen out for mistakes. I used to be, when I first went to the BBC Proms and other concerts 30-odd years ago, I used to gauge the quality of the concert performance according to the number of mistakes I reckoned I could identify. Not an endearing quality... In my defence, I was quite young then, it was a game, I was a bit inexperienced and possibly a little insecure. Things have changed now. The joy of rehearsals then isn't about listening for errors. There is an informality to rehearsals, an alluring kind of casuality that makes one's presence at one, assuming you're not being paid to be there, a bit of a treat. No one's on parade, but everyone's performing as though they are. You can move around seats, shifting from row to row in pursuit of the best acoustic. You can sit back, stretch out your arms and beam as you listen to a performance for one. It's quite the best way to hear a group play or sing. As an audience member, without having to perform yourself, you own the space. All of this came to mind when I visited Solomon's Knot, a vocal group whose artistic director Johnny Sells has featured on the Thoroughly Good blog before now when they were rehearsing in Trinity Church, Prince Consort Road in London, ahead of their late-night proms appearance on the 14th of August in the Royal Albert Hall next door. Trinity Church obviously doesn't have plush red chairs or stalls or a gallery to move around in during rehearsals, but it does have a boomy charm all of its own. This, in addition to the distinctive performance style of Solomon's Knot, which is rooted in singing and playing from memory, that performance style underpins a magnetic kind of communication with one another and with the audience, and it makes for utterly compelling stuff. I sat at the back with my sound recorder, deliberately so. There I could write this script and take in the view and the sound all around me. Delicious. In this podcast, number 52... You'll hear members of Solomon's Knot in a 40-odd minute discussion about their craft. You'll hear members of the group unwittingly compete with one another using analogies. And you'll get a useful primer on musical rhetoric.
We are in the beautiful nursery attached to Holy Trinity Church on Prince Consort Road, which is just opposite the Royal College of Music and just next to the Royal Albert Hall. So we're feeling very regal. And we are here rehearsing Cantatas by Bach. Probably if you could choose, if you had to choose a single date in the calendar year and the group of cantatas that fall on that day, this would be the number one, my number one favourite bunch. Um, okay, that's quite some open gambit, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, which because demands um, further so exploration. We're talking about the 29th of September. Nicholas, so, yeah, Nicholas, exactly. yes. Um, and the three and a half cantatas which Bach wrote for that particular day um, for St. Michael and All Angels, which are all in different ways concerned with angels and mainly to do with the huge battle that happened in heaven between Michael, uh, the archangel Michael, and all of his heavenly angels, uh, all of his good angels against Satan, the dragon, and all of his evil angels. And um, Michael wins the day and wins the battle and casts Satan out of heaven forever um, to roam the earth and, and annoy us here on earth. <laughs> annoy. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> and um, yeah, just the way that Bach handles that topic and, and his librettists and the levels of musical inspiration which he reaches um, with, from that, that battle, that fight... And also all of the ideas associated with angels coming from the Bible, protecting us, carrying up to heaven on a on a uh, red chariot, all yeah, all sorts of different uh, references. Have you told us why it's your favourite? Is um, that why they are my favourite group of cantatas because of consistent quality, because of astonishing music involving lots of trumpets, and choral virtuosity, and also exquisite arias and i just think the yeah the package it's such a it's just four pieces of music that are absolutely brimming with energy and virtuosity and expression and there are of course single fantastic cantatas that occur, occur across the year and there are particular days like trinity sunday where where um bach was obviously making an extra effort but um, these are my favourites. What, uh, what did the rest of you make of it? You, you were saying you were about to interrupt Tom, or you were saying something at the same time. No, just adding adding to the list of reasons. I mean, the, the, yeah, the, the inventiveness, the musical invent, inventiveness, and there's so much variety within it. Every each of the cantatas we're doing begins with an absolute splash of um, choral virtuosity is so much counterpoint, very, very complex, but also very exciting, lots of punchy uh, trumpet writing, drums and everything. And then as the cantatas move through their numbers, we get incredible, sensuous, beautiful, much more intimate numbers. Um, and uh, in, in 19, for instance, there's probably... Uh, the most beautiful tenor aria written by Bach ever, called Last Year. No, uh, <laughs> I'm to some disagreement from the other side of the room. <laughs> I don't know, I mean, it's certainly up there. It's certainly up there. It's so beautiful and, and Possibly so... Possibly the 
best aria Bach wrote ever. Wow, I was expecting superlatives. I, yeah, I, I feel I like we can kind of overwhelm ourselves with superlatives because the more music we discover by doing this group, and the more music certainly I find that Johnny introduces us to, I think, oh, this is it. This is the best one ever. And, oh, this is the best piece. Of, this is my favourite. And no, but it really is. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's just the word like that. We just get overexcited, which I, is probably nice. I so, does that suggest something about the way in which you play and rehearse together? Is that? Something, is it something to do with Johnny? Before, but before, before we talk about that, maybe I should mention why we're doing these pieces, just okay, very briefly. All right. Because we are... I'm coming we, back we're preparing, coming back yeah, we're preparing these cantatas, this programme, for a concert tomorrow. Well, uh, today's Monday and tomorrow is Tuesday. The it is, that's how it 23rd works. 23rd yes. of yes. July, and we're doing them in, in Ampleforth Abbey oh. as the first of three concerts at the Rydale Festival. So this week we're in Rydell all week. Doing um, a kind of residency. Doing a residency. This Bach programme and per, some personal and Bach motets on the Saturday. But we're also performing these cantatas again on the 14th of August at the Proms. Yes. In the evening. Uh, in the late <laughs> you're, evening. You're signalling like you've just remembered that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh, yes. Yes. oh yeah, it's we are, are when you see we? things come out through publicity, you think, oh, oh gosh, yes, we are doing that which is, that I mean... <laughs> For us, for us, it's, it's very exciting because it's our first time performing at the proms and it's in the Albert Hall. Um, it's it's a late night prom, so it's at ten fifteen p.m. And if anybody's starting to feel sleepy at that time, this will definitely kick them out of that yeah. lazy right. it's like stupor. A yeah. espresso. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Kate. <man. laughs> uh, so, is it something to do with the way that you rehearse together that that, that sort of brings out the best in every single work? Yeah, I mean, you kind of, it's kind of a little bit self-selecting this group in that you've got to be slightly bonkers and really enthusiastic about the music making. That wasn't coming across. <laughs> Not in any way. And, uh, yeah, it really relies on that. But, it, you know, it, it's a lot of individual work from us all and we've got to be really committed when we do rehearse together. So if you're kind of hoping to drift through something, you're unlikely to be in this group, I think. Mm. Uh, how many of you are performing, then, in this particular concert? Because well, I've seen a small orchestra. Yeah, we've just been yeah. doing arias this morning, so it wasn't the full group. There are eight singers, and off the top of my head, there are 18 instrumentalists, 17, 18, something like that. So what does, when you talk about commitment, what do you mean by commitment? Well, I mean, I'm, I'm sure lots of your listeners know this, but we maybe, but we, we don't have a conductor, so there's a lot of personal responsibility in making things happen in rehearsals. We've got to be really concentrated and really committed, and what's really exciting about it is that everyone brings lots of things to the table. So we've got lots of different ideas, um, from all the singers, instrumentalists, everyone has their ideas about how things should be done and the interaction of people it really relies on concentration and everyone to kind of come with ideas and obviously to come with a lot of preparation as well and to have thought about things in advance you know you can't just rock up and uh, hope that things happen it's, it, you've got to really prepare in advance oh, which is great disappointing. And, and because people put all that work in I think tends to mean that people uh, feel very committed to this and very enthusiastic and, and passionate yes. about it being fantastic music and does that suggest then that it's a democracy in rehearsals? Um, I'm looking at you, Basunas. You're looking at me. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, I actually, I just thought of something else I wanted to add to what Kate said. But um, democracy, I think, would maybe, I think, from the onset, it is, it is democratic. It is a collective, and the idea is that anybody who has ideas and strong feelings uh, is welcome. And in fact, yeah, 
asked to 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 contribute them. With and the on the other hand, then Johnny does. <laughs> yeah program things and, and, and does, yeah. as you said yesterday, like most of the preparation ahead of things, then, then that also really helps because if you don't have mm. a general <laughs> starting point... It could from, be absolute chaos. Yeah, yes, exactly. That, that that's a problem my, my because we always like, tend to think, oh, it must be democratic for it to be really nice. And that's... Yeah, so I, I, come, really with a, I come with a musical blueprint of... Or in a, a blueprint of the interpretation. Um... <clears throat> And we work from there, and if and so there are a much more limited range of choices. I kind of put the scaffolding down. Um, obviously, if people disagree at the outset, but I think we all we'll work from a fairly uh, basic set of fundamental principles in terms of harmony and rhetoric and so on. Um, <clears throat> um, but we, yeah, we we agree on tempi, especially obviously in particular arias. It's very much down to the individual singer. Um, and otherwise, there will always be points where there are options. There are different ways of interpreting something, or there might be a particular um, musical gesture or something we want to insert into the musical rhetoric, which we might try, reject, accept. Sometimes we need to try things to find out if they're possible as well. Mm. You know, especially in terms of tem tempi. Mm. If we yeah. think, yeah. could we go this fast, or could we pull it back to this speed, or sometimes you've got to work through those things to find out what's. What works, and that's. But how do you do? Uh, okay, this may seem like a really idiotic question. And I'm sorry, that's because I'm a member of the audience and I just don't know. Uh, but how do you uh, reconcile that with the need to limit rehearsal time? Because surely, well, that's you know, why, I mean, that's why we don't start from a completely blank slate. That's why um, I sit at home with, with the, all the scores and go through everybody else's arias and all of the music and and decide that. How I broadly speaking think it should or could go, and then I give that mm. information in rehearsal, and then we so we have a starting point, and then if we want to inflect it in different ways, or or sometimes reject something completely and try and do something completely differently, we can. But it doesn't mean that yeah, it's not it's not. Uh, completely open to start with we have and we also yeah. communicate quite a lot in advance of the rehearsals so um i'll communicate it's all basically channeled through me to make it the communication easier but i'll ask the singers or the solo instrumentalists quite far in advance or suggest tempi mm. or people will say oh, i think you know quite like this tempo so there's some things have been cleared up ahead of time i mean the other thing you didn't mention is the memorization yeah, exactly. aspect um, which is obviously another huge um, investment ahead of time. Inge has also actually memorised two of her obligato bassoon parts for this oh, she's such a shell. program. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm giving the impression that maybe she hasn't yet. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, we do everything. We sing everything by heart. Exactly. You really do. Um, so yeah. So actually, you know, all of the singers already have also a pretty good idea of how they imagine things going because they've they've already internalised the material. Uh, I want to come back to the memorisation thing in a bit. I know that's really annoying when it's somebody fine. does that in a, in a radio thing. It really brings me out in hides, but I've just done it. Um, <clears throat> I was wanting to ask you, you, you mentioned rhetoric. Yeah. Rhetoric in music. Uh, tell me about rhetoric and music, because I'm not familiar with that. Well, it's a huge topic, and it's very, um, very important in this period, especially in the high Baroque. Maybe Inga would like to talk more about rhetoric. Maybe Inga would. I'd Let's like ask to talk Inga. More about rhetoric. Well, yeah, I think, as you say, it's a large topic. It, I think, entails all sorts of, well, what we like to 
to call it gestures as well. I think the general idea that, that music uh, could be equivalent to language in the way that it has punctuation and that certain, like, I could have make an exclamation or ask a question. Um, it's like the most basic, expressive kind of uh, repertoire. And then within that, I think especially in Baroque music, you have something that was called Figurenlehre, where you have uh, yeah, certain figurations in the music, like even basic things, if the things go up or down, or you have a sighing motif, which is actually called that because it does exactly that, grouped in pairs. So there's a lot of expressive content that, well, you could think it's all up for grabs, but it isn't actually because it is kind of prescribed. And especially with cantatas or vocal works where we have words as well, you can very often see that it's very masterly done. So that whole package, I think, so, uh, so is, it, is it marked as in is it is it flagged in the music or is this uh, inter open to interpretation? There are signs in the music which you which you read which you can read. So, I mean, if you, uh, classic case would be uh, the Ritonello of a Bach aria, for example, like the one one of the ones that we were playing this morning with Inga, <coughs> um, and it's structured like a, a rhetorical speech. So you'd have you have the opening. And yeah, that also structure-wise, exactly. That and, also. and then you have a, a kind of a sequential section in the meaning where, middle where something is spun out, like a theme is discussed yeah. and then played in, a, in different keys, in a different order. And then you have a kind of summation at the end, a conclusion to the phrase. And <clears throat> so, I mean, in musical terms, um, uh, a lot of it, as, uh, as far as I'm concerned, is about um, expectation management, and also the audience at that time hearing um, all this music which was always using this same kind of musical language um, would be expecting or would know what to expect and would be listening for when those expectations were thwarted so interrupted cadences were you know, a deliberate sort of musical uh, surprise, as it were, a twist in the speech or in the timing of, of the orator, of the musical orator. So in, you know, in the first bar of this bassoon aria, which we were practicing this morning, um, on the first two bars, the thing goes, da 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 dum bum dee da 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 bum I'm singing it too low now, but... Da-da-da-da-dum-dum-dee-da-da-da-bum. Da-da-da-da-dum-dum-dee-da-da-da-dum. So you've got... Two, you've got a repeated uh, uh, rhythmic fragment and a kind of bold opening statement, but already in the, on the fourth beat of the third bar, there's this kind of trip up in the music. A note which doesn't belong to the harmony. And if you just play... Then you'd almost... It would pass you by and you'd think, oh, that note sounded a bit wrong, but it wasn't... You know, I didn't really particularly care about it but if you you can choose to make a feature of it and you can choose to especially for an audience nowadays that are not necessarily used to listening rhetorically just slightly um, pointed up and then that's the sort of opening part of the of the speech as it were and then you get and it goes on in a, in a sequence so then the sort of more conversational part of the aria of the ritonello begins and so once you start once you start thinking in those terms it's it's uh, easier to find shapes or to decide how you'd like to play it because you're you're playing with 
how one might expect the phrase to continue, and then it doesn't. It changes and continues in a different way. Uh, presumably, because you're uh, because you're singing from or ultimately singing from memory, then then my expectation is is that that you will anticipate some of those elements before you come to rehearsal. Is that oh, yeah, exactly. I think so, absolutely. But the other thing I find really interesting in this process, because we don't have um, any copies, that are personally I find my senses are very heightened. I'm very aware of the shapes and musical suggestions that people are giving. So I, actually what I find interesting is, and one of the reasons that rehearsals keep moving, is that often the suggestions you're getting are almost kind of... So they're non-verbal. Yes, but you're not having to stop and discuss, oh, let's do it like that. You just, someone suggests something, you pick up on it and then you run with it. And it's these little un, yeah, non-verbal suggestions of things which can happen, be happening all the time and they're fizzing from all different people in the orchestra where they're suggesting a way to phrase it. And you've got to kind of be ready to have them all fired at you. And, uh, it kind of makes me think that every, every rehearsal has the potential to be a live performance. Can feel like that. Yeah. Definitely can feel like that. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's a fantastic freedom created by the lack of uh, conductor because we don't, nothing needs to be channeled visually through one person. So a lot of that information which you're talking about is happening non verbally, happening musically, but can also be led by a little bit of eye contact saying, like, I'm showing you this idea by looking at someone, mm. and then somebody can respond. And that freedom also in, in quite a large ensemble, just simply by the fact that, that there's nobody that everybody has to look at. normally if you're standing in the choir, you're, you're all looking at the conductor, mm. whereas in our group, we tend to be like, sometimes we'll be looking at Inga the bassoon, or we're, we're looking at the violins, or we're looking, you'll be noticing more what everyone's doing, which and is I also really get the, useful. I also get the impression that you probably need to really trust each other, because yeah. you're having to take quite a leap, because you're, 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 you're missing that sort of central point of direction. Yeah, absolutely, and everybody has to be pulling in the same direction. It becomes very, very quickly obvious if if somebody's daydreaming or if God you know, forbid. Different different room. Room. Well, yeah. The thing is, you, there Tom. are some situations where one <laughs> could, <laughs> where one could be, be, become. I mean, yeah. Or uh, resisting, because in a way, it's almost like a. I would like to think of it as a flock of birds. You know, these um, non. Hmm. I, I, I'm sorry. I always say this, by the way, that Johnny's just rolled his eyes. I always say this. I was smiling, oh, smiling, whispering. Oh, okay. There's absolutely no <laughs> tension in the room at all. No, I'm going to stick with this analogy because I do think it's right. I think it's that, you know, we all move in the right direction, but with a certain individuality and always having to be aware of what everyone else in the group is doing mm. and constantly morphing and regrouping mm. and forming. I think it's absolutely magical it's that that. It's flocking brilliant. It's flocking. We do leave a lot of things sort of unset, actually, don't we? Yeah. I mean, every time we do, a, for instance, we did uh, seven B minor masses over the last couple of years, something like that, and everyone felt very different because, yeah, we had the sort of global architecture sort of in our minds set, but within that and within every phrase, um, people are free to take it in a new direction, a new shape, and then so every every time it's different, and that's part of the joy of it. It's a bit, it's it's sort of a bit like the process that jazz musicians go through, um, and and yeah, it's it's a sort of fun, different way if of we making were, music as a group. If we were to say, right, this is how we've decided we're doing it, that's it, you know. Bar I line. think that would kill it. It, it would be the really kiss of death. It, but because yeah. anyone could suggest anything, even in live performance, it's kind of terrifying and yes. thrilling because of that. <laughs> well, that's the other thing. Ready I mean, for anything. And if you know, at the end of the day, if somebody does strongly feel that something should be played a certain way, you know, whatever is said in rehearsal, <laughs> when it comes to the it. when it comes <laughs> to the concert, 
there's nothing anybody can do about you know. Okay. I feel quite nervous now. From an audience point of view, I think I'm right in saying that I saw you in St Giles, St Giles Cripplegate. Is That's that right. Yeah. Were you all there? Uh, Inga wasn't there. Um, the thing that struck me, and this may seem like I'm being slightly frivolous, but uh, the thing that I notice about choirs, especially musical theatre choruses, when they're on stage, is they do quite a lot of acting without moving, and it can be quite off-putting. It can be surprisingly off-putting, and I, it strikes me there is a fine line between doing that non-verbal communication in an authentic way and doing it in a way that is quite distracting you don't seem to do that do you mean doing it in a showy way yes as in yeah. that <clears throat> i don't recall there being any acting i saw there being lots of communication and i wonder how you manage that because it could be quite easy to yeah. tilt into acting it's, we never do it for effect it's always pur yeah. purposeful that we I mean, need to be together or we want to communicate rather than mm. then what does this look like we want to communicate with each other. Yeah. We want to communicate with the audience as well. We've got a very important message in our text and in our musical text, musical rhetoric, to deliver to the audience. Um, we don't want to ram it down their throats, but um, we also need to communicate with each other. But I think the way that we communicate with each other is purely for its own sake and for its own enjoyment. But I don't think um, we ever consciously try to demonstrate that that would be kind of eggy. Are you having to be? Yeah, it's it's sort of almost like melodrama that I'm mm. that I'm resisting against. I'm wondering whether you're having to be aware of that, or maybe you just do it anyway. We have discussed these issues a lot over the years, and um, effectively, it's, it ends up being a balance somewhere in between. You know, where where you feel connected, and yet you're still conscious of that your main task of of um, doing a concert. <laughs> I think any good any good actor doesn't act. They just are. They just say their words in a completely unaffected way to whomever they're speaking or the audience member. And I think as soon as you feel the impression an actor is trying to show you something, it mm. turns you off. Mm. Um, and I think it's the same for us. We're um, like the best actors. We're just trying to be as honest as possible. Uh, I'm also interested in, possibly because I'm a wind player, I'm interested in the idea that at some point between um, rehearsal and performance, because you were rehearsing the music today, I was slightly disappointed to discover that when I go to church, just because my assumption was was that you would be rehearsing without any music. Um, but, but I'm interested in the transition between leaving the music behind and stepping onto stage with nothing with you and what that experience is like. Because I find that even saying that makes me sort of, I have something to hide behind when I'm playing. For Absolutely, music. yeah. I mean, I can say from my direct experience now that I've, because I've always found it quite important that it's not just the singers who do everything from memory. That where where possible or where it offers itself, like an obligato aria, that instrumentalists would also do it. And then a couple of weeks ago, I realized that in this cantata program, there actually are a couple of numbers that if I want to be to what I think I should actually memorise them although there was no time I get the to impression really that you're not going no, to I really, no I didn't I didn't memorise them and then I knew that today was going to be the rehearsal where I would actually like try to play it off copy straight away because otherwise I don't find there's much of a way back so I memorised it from the score when I know that when I'm reading music I find I get quite dependent also on the layout being reliable especially when I want to have this funny halfway of 
being having the music but still having a lot of contact in a way I find that harder than not having music at all because you're constantly negotiating can I take this risk and then yeah. typically it ends up looking at least like you don't have very much contact are you and recording a photographic tricky. print of the music or is for it for myself as yes. a memorizing technique yeah. I don't think so. I find, and that's something that I found interesting when doing it in the rehearsal today, because now I've had two days of doing other stuff and I didn't have a chance to simply just play it. And because maybe it's also because we don't have words on instruments, I find the, the motoric memory is incredibly important. And although I had now like looked at the music again last night and had another listen and, and stuff, and I would have maybe known what it looks in the score, but if your fingers aren't 100% confident, it kind of gets in the way completely differently from... You know, especially in orchestra, there's such a strong connection between like playing what you see. And it's like, I don't know. And when you take that away, it's a completely different. Make so you, you, you start thinking like technically, I, I'm perfectly fine to play this actually. But, but then, you know, and so strengthening that, I think, is more my way of it's a very different making mode sure that of I performance. Also, yeah. we tend as a, as a with the singers, we tend to we tend to rehearse with, with no music. I mean, we, 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 we te- we te- the, the idea, the ideal, is that everyone turns up first rehearsal, puts the scores down, and just listens and makes, makes music. And generally, that happens. I mean, obviously... Mm-hmm. Generally, by that stage, it's too late if you don't know. Yeah, it we takes don't so time. long yeah, to yeah. internalise it and let it soak in. Mm-hmm. But you have to kind of come knowing it. Everyone is slightly different, and, and also... Um, I mean, this project, in each project, there are always one or two people who are new to the group, or usually one or two people who are new to the group, and and might be new to to memorizing programs on this scale or programs of this kind, and just want to have the uh, want to have the score there as a reassurance. But it's up to the individual when they choose to to let it go, and really and really just not look at people it. People have different levels of danger as well that they're willing to work at. You know, some people love the thrill of. Think I know it. I'm just going to get it right. Whereas other, otherwise, us more safer. I mean, for example, I feel like it needs to be so well mm-hmm. in the back of my brain that I'm never Thank put you. off by the fact that I'm trying to do it by heart. I'm never thinking, oh gosh, is it me? Oh, is that? I just feel like I just know it, and it's so far back in my brain that I'm just mm. it just the words and the notes just come out, and I'm just mm. able to concentrate and on what's and happening. And then enjoy the music making. And Absolutely, yeah. and I think that's really important that it doesn't actually become a distraction or something that. Letting go of the score for the first time in the concert would be much too scary for me. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and how do you how do you manage uh, errors? Because again, my assumption is is that if you're they learning never it by heart, <laughs> of course, Tom, they never ever happen. <laughs> what am I suggesting? I'm being really unprofessional. However, <laughs> uh, I, I just because because you're learning by heart, I wonder whether there's that. And again, I'm bringing. You mean errors in performance? Uh, errors in rehearsals. So, if well, errors, in rehearsal, re- errors in rehearsals. How we learn it properly? Yeah. Is there a danger well, that by learning it by heart, that and and taking that risk every time you sing, whether it's in rehearsal or concert, that if you if you make an error, then you end up creating some kind of issue around that moment of the error? Do you, do you say, almost like it's a wound. That, that no, just, you just have to fix it. Yeah. I, I find it. I mean, I find errors invaluable. If I didn't. Uh, when I get to the rehearsal process and I try not to look at that, the score anymore, where I make mistakes mm. is where I know that that evening I need to go back and I need to, I, I need to iron that out. Mm. Yeah, mm. I need to learn that in better. And we talk about um, different, the different sort of layers of memory in a way. You have 
you have the basic musical text and then you have the sort of metadata over the top sort of telling yourself okay the kind of where your cues are or mm. how long each phrase is you kind of build a sort of more long range structure over the whole thing and yeah you might just need to go in and you keep quite a lot of things only in your short term memory because sometimes if, especially if the music's not very well put together you need quite a lot of sort of secondary information to remind yourself um, how it goes and if I don't yeah making mistakes in rehearsals is one of the most important parts of the learning process for me because even if you know something backwards it's such a huge amount of material it's such complicated material that there are always little things that are going to go wrong and and if you put it together there's so many other things as well I mean it's one thing to prepare something no matter how well yeah there are other ideally variables. so much but then you go on there and then everything else comes in and it's typically also I know for myself that happens whether I have music or not but then there's suddenly is such an overload that you need to I think you also need to just be prepared to, to accept that these kind but of but even in the performance I mean we've got we're prepared that something may go wrong in the performance you kind of make yourself vulnerable by standing there and thinking it's quite possible I may forget something yeah. and you just kind of learn to deal with that in the way that it requires all... a certain amount of self-management yeah and I, I think imagine. also yeah, I think we've, we've, I think, yeah, yeah. I think I speak for everyone and say the, the, the goal is is to really step beyond the challenge of memory. I mean, in a way, that's a, it's a difficult thing to do, but it's not that unusual within the singing community. I mean, no, most of Loads of choirs are internationally mm. singing. Mm. Yeah, no, opera singers and song singers. You know, it's not yeah. that weird a thing to do. It's a slightly weird thing to do. On a... I feel as though you might be on the defensive. No, no, but, but, but <laughs> the point is the interesting thing is what, what happens... What does when, it facilitate? What, it, yeah. what it fa- yeah. facilitates and... and, and um, you know the ability. What, what, how, partly through the amount of work you have to do in advance, it, it forces you to get that close mm. to the cold face of the music, and then also allows you to c- communicate it in a way which you just can't when you're holding the music. Um, and and so that's the, for me the really interesting thing about making the choice this difficult choice of doing it all by heart. Are you both deploying competing analogies? Because you, you used a flock of birds, you used the coal face. <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking the flock of birds is stronger, really. <laughs> Not that it's a competition. Well, yeah. <laughs> I'm what, sorry, what I think is, What I think is, um, is most interesting or is most... Um, I don't want to say unique, because I don't want to make any claims, but uh, I think the... As you mentioned, the memorizing is is not necessarily unusual or interesting in itself. It's the the combination of the fact that we we don't have a, a visual leader. I mean, that's why we started memorizing in the first place. When we what we first started, what we first did was got rid of the conductor, and we got did rid of. We did a concert without a conductor. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's dramatic. Conductor was me, so I just started singing and stopped right, conducting. Okay, but. Right. Um, can we do Messiah without a conductor in the first place? That was the first thing you did? Yeah, just start small, you know. Oh. Um, well, it's something we knew very well. Yes. And, and um, oh so, we, so that, was our f- that was the first test, because we'd started doing a little bit of smaller scale repertoire, and so can we, can we carry that out on a larger scale? And then it became, okay, we discovered we could do it, but the scores were, became a real hindrance. And again, because it was a piece we were very familiar with, okay, can we take that to the next level? Obviously, that was uh, yet another hurdle, uh, not, not a purely musical one. But um, it was as a consequence, really, 
of, of losing the conductor. And the combination of those two things is what, um, is what frees us up, I guess, in a way, or opens us up musically. Um, not that, you know, because you can memorize a concert for a conductor, but you're still in the grip of that conductor, and now you might not necessarily notice a discernible difference. Every professional choir should not be looking in their scores while they're singing. I think the other thing as well is that, as well as the, what mem- memorising things facilitates, I, I'm also interested in what it makes us do, what it forces us to do. So, you know, whatever, whatever the outcome is, ultimately, it means that you, you can't be doing any artful bullshit. You've got to know absolutely what every word means. You've got to know everyone's entry. You've got to know the structure of the piece. You've got to know it backwards. You've got to come to your first rehearsal with such an incredible vast you know pre- preparation behind you compared to what we sometimes get away with as mm. British choirs particularly you know British choirs are notoriously quick we sight read well we can stand up there we which can, is wonderful kind of, which itself. is amazing mm. it's a wonderful skill set but it, mm. it means that you can get away with actually a kind of slightly surface knowledge of a piece it doesn't always touch the sides yeah <laughs> so uh, whereas I, I love okay. the fact that we, we always have to kind of work at a slightly deeper level with things because we're, we're memorising it but does that also mean that when you return to other groups where... Deeply memori- disappointed. <laughs> I wonder <laughs> yes, whether, you, whether you're standing again. And you look around everyone thinking, why haven't you learned about how And then you realise that it's totally idiotic and of course... Yeah. I mean, thank God, because it would be, impossible, be to make a, impossible to make any sort of income if we had to do this for every single it's group we sing with. I don't, think, um, I, don't think the com- I don't think that comparisons are helpful in any way. I don't think, we're not, I don't think there's any m- merit in saying that it's better or worse or different from any other mm. group. Did, did you think that we had? I don't know that we had. Had we? Had we? I no, I we just had. wanted to make that point. Okay, fine. Uh, I'm wondering what the experience of doing that kind of performance is uh, emotionally and physically when it's over. Relief. Elation as well. Elation yeah. and relief. And a great sense of communal... Achievement. I mean, the thing is, you know, this kind of vulnerability of putting yourself in this stressful situation where there's not one person in charge and there's no scores is that you rely absolutely on your colleagues and you know that they're relying on you. That's a, that's a really high pressure. Yeah. Just worth pointing yeah. out that James has joined us. Hello. Yeah. Our leader. James Toll, our great leader. How are you doing? Great. It sounds um. slightly communist. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Yeah, yeah. Right. Okay. The, um, the first person in this group has used the word thus. <laughs> the, um, the, obvious, the obvious thing uh, after a performance is that we get a lot of feedback from the audience, obviously, and um, that feedback is often very positive because people seem to, to get involved um, with the communication that we are, have yeah. between each other yeah. and are sharing with them. And We don't want it to know, be an indulgence, a personal indulgence. We want to feel that actually it comes across it adds something to it. Mm. Well, certainly, yeah. my memory was that there was a there was an immediacy to the performance that was actually quite arresting. Uh, and I was halfway sat halfway down St Giles Cripplegate, and it was you know that was quite that was quite infectious. Mm. So I didn't see it as indulgent at all. No. Good, but um, uh, <laughs> yay! We, you know, we've been obviously making it through to the end of a concert, which is it feels like we you know we we choose to climb a high mountain. And then when you get to the top of a very high mountain, there's an amazing sense of elation. And of course, when you're, when you're sharing that with other people, when you're sharing that with an audience, and when you get 
my, my analogy is going wrong now, but when you get a huge wave. Okay. Back. Then you know wave. this combination of wow, we, we you know we, we we climbed that mountain and it's raining. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I just wanted to know whether, say, the day after having invested in a particular performance, whether you whether you feel the impact of it. I know when I've done uh, when I've done workshops, for example. Uh, I've thrown a lot of energy into a workshop and then the following morning I feel like I've been beaten up and I'm wondering whether whether you just become accustomed to that kind of... There's so much adrenaline, there's so many endorphins the in the blood. Thing, I think the only thing I notice is if I haven't done much Solomon's Knot for a while I feel that my brain is ticking over a little bit more slowly and I feel a little less alive. <laughs> and that's really nice because it makes me realise that we're like, oh, so like firing on all cylinders and so aware. Have you not had any dates through for the next season? <laughs> <laughs> it's okay, we've got something in the diary. Okay. Okay. Kept alive. But you know, like, it, 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 I feel like my brain is different because of the input we're getting from so many people in the rehearsal room or in the performance platform. Mm. I mean, there certainly also seems to be a really special dynamic to the, to the performances, no matter how much on edge things can still feel. And, and like, I think the last concert we had certainly was, was a very exciting one for all of us and, and not easy from the onset. And what you just said with this kind of vulnerability, you do feel that, I think, at all times. You go out there and there's like nothing to hide, even though we do play with music. But it was really like, yeah, circumstances can be difficult. It was tropical heat in that church it's like all sorts of things and then at some point you just think this wasn't at all what I imagined it would be and you just let go of it but then it all it really happens like all this communication stuff and then afterwards you really just think yeah. I don't know how you guys feel but it feels like to a certain extent you're really giving you're making yourself slightly naked totally yeah giving like showing true emotion bearing your soul to some extent you know giving an audience a lot of a lot of trust as well, a lot of confidence, and it's kind of trying to strip away a lot. I mean, the uh, reason that I wanted to create some kind of group in the first place was just that, that yeah, the, the musical impulse comes from the musicians and the, mo- the intrinsic motivation comes from the musicians, not because of the money, not because of the uh, conductor, but because of the repertoire and because of the musical expression that they want to make and share. Um, and when you do that, if you give that much, yeah, you're making yourself vulnerable. And when people respond positively to that, it's, it's a great affirmation. As an audience member, my, my assumption is, is that doing a proms performance comes uh, with a certain amount of different kind of pressure. Is that the case or is it just in the context? The proms. I think nowadays the proms are so varied in, in the kind of concerts that happen. It's just glorious, the, the range of things and the different kind of ensembles out there. Um, but I don't <coughs> feel that particular. For me, I mean, one we should really seem to be sat on the floor. Yeah, I am. He's just small. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's very self effacing. Yeah. This is me at full height. <laughs> <laughs> That's really embarrassing. I mean, one shouldn't ever um, give a building more power than, well, mm. or any power at all. Um, but in fact, for me, the Albert Hall has never been anywhere that I found imposing or scary. Perhaps I had a, a good um, first 
um, concert experience there. I can't remember what it was, but for some reason I've always felt comfortable in that building. And there are other buildings where, and I'm not going to tell you which ones they are, in case you come to any of the gigs and see me having a terrible time. Um, but there are other places where I don't feel so at home. Um, and though the Albert Hall seats, however many it is, 8,000 people. Five and a half. Five and a half, there you go, just lock off the um, uh, It is a quite uh, a reassuring place to play. It's yes, it's massive, but it's also it also has a lovely sound, which is part of it. And uh, the audience—it's a very always, celebratory audience. Yeah, they always yeah. seem on yeah. side. Yeah. I mean, a concert hall is only as good as its audience, and um, yeah. to, to a main extent, as well as its acoustic. I mean, there is of course something slightly intimidating and gladiatorial about the way you come out of a very narrow tunnel, yeah. just the sheer expansion of space. Yeah. But I mean, I. And of course, I still can't believe, can't quite believe that we're actually doing a concert, yeah. and I won't believe it until we're in the building. <laughs> but on the other hand, we are performing this music for a certain group of people, and at the end of the day, that's all that matters. Certainly, not going to think about this is the problem, and this is really intimidating. We we know what our job is um, in terms of delivering this music yeah, to that people. We've always wanted to commu- just communicate to an yeah. audience, so we have to still find that even when there's yeah. you know vastly more people than we we well, used to. It's, I mean, it's a wonderful opportunity, yeah. um, and it's a wonderful stage, and, you know, we're just glad to... Glad You've been to listening to the Thoroughly Good Classical Music Podcast, available on Spotify and Audioboom. To get in touch, please tweet at Thoroughly Good. You can also follow Thoroughly Good on Facebook, and read the blog at thoroughlygood.me.